Today on the Diamond Press podcast, we welcome in Coach Paul Mills. Paul Mills was born in the Houston area, where he ultimately became a head coach at North Belt Christian Academy, then moved on to Fort Bend Baptist Academy, both in the Houston area. And in 2003, Scott Drew hired him onto his initial Baylor staff, where he stayed for 14 years, helping Baylor rise from the bottom of the Big 12 to the number one team in the country. In 2017, Coach Mills took over at Oral Roberts, taking over a team that had won eight games the year prior. And he now has them coming off of a Sweet 16 appearance. In the 2021 NCAA tournament, the 15-seeded Golden Eagles beat Ohio State, beat Florida, and nearly beat Arkansas en route to a Sweet 16 berth. Coach Mills touches on a bunch of uh, topics with us, including advice for young coaches, mentorship in coaching, his own personal philosophy for offense, the different types of things he wants to see in his ideal program and how to build his ideal program, um, as well as several other things, including his love for the movie Hoosiers. So please enjoy this conversation with Coach Paul Mills. So welcome to the first ever episode of the Diamond Press podcast. My name is Aiden Kunst, joined by Brant Wilsey, and we are excited to welcome Coach Paul Mills onto the show. Coach Mills uh, was a longtime assistant at Baylor. Obviously, you know him now as the head coach at Oral Roberts. They just had a Cinderella run um, to the Sweet 16 as a 15 seed, obviously. Coach, uh, how you doing? Um, obviously, that, that run was awesome to watch. A couple inches away from, from making an Elite Eight. I hate to bring that, that memory up, but how you doing? Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Aiden, for, uh, for having me. And um, yeah, uh, it, it's kind of hard to reflect at this particular time, but um, but I think over the course of time, you kind of gain some perspective. But uh, losing a two-point game, obviously, in a Sweet 16, that'll keep you up at nights for a while. Yeah, absolutely, Coach. And, you know, this this podcast, we, we're, we're starting it. This is the first ever episode. We're, we're, we're starting it because we're two, two people who ultimately want to become basketball coaches in this profession. Um, you're obviously an established coach. I, I'd love to just kind of ask you to take us through your coaching journey from where it started and, and just kind of how you've gotten to the point that you have. Well, one, I'm honored that uh, you choose me for your first ever podcast, man. That's a, that's, that's quite a, a, I've got work to do. Uh, can only uh, hopefully go uphill from here. Uh, so I'll try not to set the bar too low. Um, but I think anybody who who gets into coaching, um, you you never desired to get into coaching. Um, basketball, just playing is the fun part. Coaching is rewarding. But for me, I grew up in a in a poor home. Um, my parents didn't have any money, and and basketball is kind of the sport of the poor in America and European and African countries. It's soccer. But in America, it's basketball. So I couldn't afford shoulder pads and a helmet. I couldn't afford a baseball glove or a baseball bat. But I could run down to the end of the street and play with 15, 20 other guys and girls. Uh, and, and we could have one ball and, and you could play. Um, the, the great thing about the game 21 is 
Uh, it's the first one to get 21 and 15, 20 people can be out there playing. So did that, loved it, was uh, obsessed with it and just wanted to be good and, and went to a Division II school, um, was good enough to get a scholarship at that level. I wasn't very good in hindsight, um, but, but was good enough to get a scholarship. And, and I realized very quickly that my gift was not playing. And, and unfortunately, that's a hard reality when you're a teenager, because when you're a teenager, you think you can kind of conquer the world. Um, and, and so that reality hit. And then what I wanted to do was use the game of basketball to help other people. And then what I soon realized that my gift was helping and uh, started to, to work with people, specifically inner city kids who kind of came from the same background as me. And we shared the same socioeconomic situation and wanted to help those guys and shared with them how basketball allowed me to get an education um, and, and allowed me to have uh, an opportunity to be around others and help others. And so from that context, I just really began to invest myself in how can I be good at helping others with the game of basketball? And then you would watch others succeed and, and, and their success was your success. And so the greater their success was, um, the happier you were. And, and so from that context, I just became a connoisseur of how do you teach basketball? How do you get players better at basketball? Um, what is this process look like? Uh, what are realistic expectations? And so from all of that, I just really devoted myself to, to, to helping others using the game of basketball. Yeah, so it's obvious that, you know, pretty early on you, uh, you know, basketball was like your, your getaway almost. But, uh, you know, my question is, at what point did you know that uh, basket that you wanted to be a Division One coach, or maybe not a Division One coach? But like I know your high school coach had said that uh, he recognized some qualities in you that you were you, you were going to be a coach one day. And I'm just curious what uh, what qualities you had that prompted him to say that. And my high school coach said I'd be a coach someday because he knew I wasn't going to be a player someday. Uh, <laughs> so he said, listen, if you got a chance, it's going to be uh, teaching others. It isn't going to be through playing. So so uh, in my perspective, so my high school coach, Walt Kayser, um, was a tremendous coach. I was always amazed. Um, he was quite a bit older than us. Uh, you know, when you're when you're a teenager, everybody seems like they're in their 70s and 80s. Uh, you really don't even know how old they are. You just know that they're old. And so he, he, he was just old, but he would foam at the mouth um, and, and spit all over us because we weren't in a defensive stance. And I would always think to myself, like, man, this old man is so passionate about us being in a defensive stance. And he would just get on you if something wasn't right. And I just said, man, I wish I was that passionate about something. I wish I had as much fire as that guy did. And so I just enjoyed playing because I wanted to honor him and I wanted to honor my teammates. And so from that perspective, what I did take away from all of that is that is that people will pay attention to you if it's important to you. And so, well, how do you know if something's important to you? Your ability to communicate it. 
your ability to express it, your, your level of enthusiasm uh, when you're talking about something. If you've ever been around somebody who just met a new girl and like, bro, you can't shut up. Like, would you shut up? Like uh, you've been talking about her for 10 minutes straight. You realize like, you know, my man is like either really thirsty or he's like madly in love. One of those two. And then, and, and so from that perspective, it was, man, he could convey his love for the game of basketball in a way that I'd never seen. And so what it made me do was, man, I want to be really good at this because you can tell that this game has afforded others an opportunity well beyond high school. For him, it was an occupation. For others, it was a college education. And so from that perspective, it was how Poor people got out of the hood one of two ways. You either took the right way or the wrong way. And so I had plenty of opportunities to, to sell drugs and, and do other things, but I knew that my dad wasn't going to approve of that. So I either needed to get my grades right and commit to basketball, or I could go the wrong path. So I decided to go the, 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 the right path. And I just wanted, for me, I wanted to be as passionate about playing so I was the guy who dove on the floor for all the loose balls. I was a guy who was going to win all the drills. Uh, I was going to run my six-minute mile faster than everybody else. I just wasn't going to get through. And so I think from that perspective, it was this, listen, if we're going to do it, let's do it really, really well. Let's, let's not just casually do this and make the time. And so I think maybe uh, that's probably what he saw was a guy who was really passionate about if he asked us to do something, I wanted to do it as, as well as I possibly could. Yeah, and Coach, you, you talk about, you know, your high school coach foaming at the mouth. I, I wonder if you could contrast that to what Coach Scott Drew was like when you were with him at Baylor. And because he's described as fun-loving guy, always has a smile on his face. How, how are those two styles different? What did you learn under Coach Drew? And then kind of just, I wonder about the, the importance of a mentor for a young coach. You know, we're both young coaches. I'm sure you've had more mentors than, than just Coach Drew, but but the idea of just a mentor that you can lean on for, you know, if you ever need help, if you need information, whatever it may be. Sure. Uh, Scott is totally different than my high school coach, Walt Kayser. Uh, definitely different people. I don't rarely did I ever hear Coach Drew yell uh, at anybody. Um, it just, it wasn't his style. Now, I will tell you this. Both of them are the same in level of competitiveness. Uh, there is a persona that Scott puts on publicly, and it's not phony. Um, he's genuinely excited and happy. And then there is a persona when he's talking to the staff after things don't go well. Uh, <laughs> I can promise you that they are different. And he never once ever uttered a curse word uh, to me or any of that. He just said, guys, we have to get better. And it starts, he would always say, it starts with me. I have to do a better job recruiting. I have to do a better job in player development. Well, you get, you would sit there and you'd, you'd be like, okay, um, if you're going to sit around and say, you need to do better, well, then you're obviously talking about how we need to do better too. But he would, he would always look in the mirror first. And because he always looked in the mirror first, you knew behind closed doors. Yes, he was nice. Yes, he was encouraging. Um, he wasn't going to point out your flaws more than he was going to uh, point out the positive things you were going to do. But, but he was ultra competitive and he wanted to figure it out. And so in that context, 
both of my coaches, the guy I played for and then the guy that I worked with um, were very similar. They just went about it different ways. And obviously there's a number of different ways you can do it. Uh, regarding a mentor, um, I, I would tell you that it's extremely important. Um, and, and, and I wouldn't, uh, Scott was somebody that I worked with on a daily basis. I just, I, I talked to him yesterday. Um, and so we, we talk three or four times a week still. Um, but, but by the same token, I would tell you that the guys that were mentors for me, uh, were local high school coaches. When I was a high school coach, I found the best high school coaches in the city of Houston where I coached and I wore those guys out. I would go sit in their open gyms. I would go by their office hours. I would, uh, when they, when they had open gyms and they are inviting kids during the summer, I would go sit by them and, and talk to them about basketball. And so I would, those guys really helped me high school coaches in the area, um, were really significant in my life. And then I'm a big believer in what's called the proximity principle. Um, if you want to do it, go put yourself around the people that you that you think you do a good job. And so for me, the Houston Rockets practice facility was near me. So guess what? I was there every day, uh, just hanging around. I'd just be leaning up against the wall. And here comes Charles Barkley. Here comes Scotty Pippen, Clyde Drexler, Akeem Olajuwon. They're like, who's that? little white guy over there who's always standing over there in the corner. Well, it was me. And I was picking Rudy Tomjanovich's brain and I was asking questions and why do y'all do this? Why that? And I just sit around and try to be a sponge. And then coach Majerus, the former coach at, for the Utah Utes um, and, and at St. Louis Billikens, but um, I would go spend my summers um, with coach Majerus. He taught a big man camp and I would go up hang out. Michael White, who's the head coach at Florida, um, he and I were like roommates. Uh, his room was right across from mine. And so we weren't in the same room, but his, we were right across from each other on the same hallway. And so I would, I would work Coach K's camps. I would work Coach Roy Williams' camps. I would work University of Texas, University of Houston, whatever was near me. Um, but I would go put myself around other basketball coaches. And so I would tell you, is there just one mentor? I can only learn from this one guy. The answer to that, in my opinion, is no. But you do need to have people that you can call on who are older than you. I don't know um, how familiar you are with the Bible, but there is a, a story in Proverbs chapter 7. And, and this is what it, it's the story of the path. And, and it's a path that a young man takes. And, and it begins with the youth are naive. It's not your fault. It's not my fault that I'm naive. It's just, I don't have much experience. All right. That's not it. That's not a, an attack. It's just the reality of the situation. Well, how do I gain experience? I lean on people who are older than me. I ask them questions. I try to figure this out. So I don't think you necessarily need just one person. Hey, this is my mentor. This is the only guy I talk to. I would tell you that there's probably a number of people who you may be impressed with, but we can impress from afar, but we only impact up close. You have to get up close to these people in order for them to make an impact on you. And so anybody can be impressive from afar. Um, people are impressed with Scott Drew. Um, that's great. He just won a national championship. Um, but what you may think he is publicly 
isn't really who he is privately. And the way that he's going to have an impact on you is you impact up close. And so from that perspective, I think mentors are extremely valued because of the impact that they have, because now it's moved beyond, hey, I'm impressed, I'm impressed, because uh, you're not going to be as impressed with them the more you get to know them, because you're going to realize everybody has flaws. And by the same token, they're going to be able to have a significant influence on you that's going to impact you and your decision making for your future. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting. You said you and Mike White were, you say you were roommates? We were right across the hall from each other. Right across so, the hall. So like think of a dorm room and the dorm across and then my dorm. It was on, it's what it was, was we were in a, we were in a dorm hall at Utah. So it was like sort of a reunion there in the round of 32. I, I've known Mike a long time. He does phenomenal work. I mean, I've I known him when he was at Jacksonville State as an assistant coach um, way back when. I knew him when he played at, at, at Ole Miss. I knew him when he had a cup of coffee in the NBA. And so I, I've known Mike uh, for, for a long time. That was the first time, obviously, that our two teams had ever played against each other as head coaches. But um, – Mike's a phenomenal coach, uh, even better person. So Aiden and I, being from Indiana, we took notice that uh, you really like the movie Hoosiers. Love it. When we saw it, where we read where you'd, uh, you'd seen it a thousand times. It, here, here's, here's uh, I like the movie Hoop Dreams more, um, which, which has some Midwest ties. It's in Chicago. Uh, if you've never seen Hoop Dreams, it is a wonderful documentary. I think it won an Oscar, to be honest with you. Um, but a phenomenal movie. Um, Hoosiers would rank second on my list just of, of movies all time. Hoop Dreams won, uh, Hoosiers two. And before every game um, I ever coached, I had the movie on. Um, and so when I say watch, it didn't like me staring at the screen as if I'm some sort of robot and just, hey, you just take two hours of your life and stare at this. It's usually playing in the background. Now, I've seen it enough. Um, I've shown my children it. My children now are, are 15 and 13. When they became eight years old, that was like their rite of passage. They had to sit with me uh, on their eight-year-old birthday and watch the movie Hoosiers. And, uh, and so because I've been involved in so many basketball games, I, it, it's it's probably well over a thousand times that I've seen that movie. But we're and when I say seen again, it's playing in the background. We're, we're talking about like being able to draw inspiration from anywhere as a coach. Is that something you do with the movie too? I mean, can you, can you really just kind of take it from anywhere? Uh, yes. I mean, there, there's so much to that movie. Um, for, for me, there, there's an intersection of basketball and faith, which are, two important topics to me. Uh, all I ever wanted to do, to be honest with you, was be a high school coach. I, I never thought about being a division one coach. I just wanted to be a high school coach. And, uh, and so the whole idea that, that somebody like um, Gene Hackman, Coach Norman Dell, uh, when he's talking to Jimmy Chitwood, he has standards, regardless of how good of a player you are. Jimmy, I don't care if you play on the team or not. Um, he actually wants what's best for Jimmy. And I just remember thinking like, man, that's a really good coach. That's a guy who wants what's best for his players. He's not trying to manipulate them. And then he didn't compromise, right? Uh, like, listen, we are going to go on this standard in regards to your conditioning level. 
and we're not scrimmaging guys until there's a certain level of endurance that you have maintained. And so from a basketball perspective, I think it's really, really terrific just from learning about the, the, the approach that he has toward not only players, but to his team. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, I want to move on to, to the subject of program building, which I think, again, you're, you're kind of uniquely qualified because of what Baylor has become. You were with Baylor pretty much since Scott took over, and everyone knows about the state of the program, I guess, when Scott took over, um, and, and it was in, in kind of a, a bad place for Baylor. Um, you know, what do you think a college or high school coach has to do to build a program that will last, not just one excellent team. I mean, I'm sure you're thinking about that now with Oral Roberts. You guys had this great year this year, but but what are your kind of ideas about how to build something that's sustainable? Uh, that's that's a great question. I, I do think I, I have a friend, Tim Maloney, who's um, a high school coach, phenomenal high school coach in Florida, but he worked with us for eight years at Baylor. And then he was with, with Coach Donovan, Billy Donovan for a number of years at Florida and uh, was with their final four teams. And, and he would always say, anybody can handle adversity because the reality is, is about adversity is what's going to happen. You're just going to work harder, right? Work and everybody's going to figure out how to handle adverse situations. Uh, most people aren't, oh, woe is me. Let me just sit here and cry. And yeah, I'm a victim. Most people are like, all right, how do we figure this out? The hardest thing he would often talk about is, can you su sustain success? Because very few people, if you remember Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he would talk about the enemy of great is good because people get good, they get happy, they get content, and then there isn't the same level of drive. And so sustaining excellence is a little bit different. So I'll go back to my second year at Baylor. We won one game the entire year in conference. We were one in 16. And then my last year in 2017, we were number one in the country. And so I watched this go from one conference win, one Big 12 win, to number one in the country. How did that happen? Like, do we have a magic formula or do we know something somebody else doesn't know um, to, 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 to establish a foundation? One, you, you know, th this is mine. This was, was Coach Drew's approach. There's a psalm that says, unless the Lord builds a house, you labor in vain. Um, if you do not have a proper foundation, you're not going to be any good. Eventually, this stuff is going to crumble, in my opinion. And so you better have a foundation, a core that is important to you. For us, uh, it was faith. And, and so from that context is we had a foundation, regardless of how pretty a house may look, if its foundation is bad, eventually that thing will crumble. Um, and so it is important that we have a foundation. Um, I would tell you, I'm unaware of a, a foundation that's better than Jesus Christ. And so from that context, people need to figure that one out. For me, that's what it is. For Scott, uh, that's what it is. Now, from that, um, I would tell you that you had better get it, this is kind of cliche, but you better get the right people on the bus and, and you better have the right people around. Uh, and I don't mean staff, I mean players. Um, New Zealand All Blacks rugby team has a, an, an approach that good people make good players. 
And I'm telling you that uh, Bill Belichick is famous for saying talent is your floor, determines your floor, but character determines your seat. You and I can be around some really talented guys, but if they're knuckleheads, um, it's not going to work. Um, it's going to mess up your team. Um, but if you have guys who are committed uh, to putting in work, uh, to having the right attitude, to having the right approach, um, to being on a team, I think that over the course of time, it's just how do I stack days together, all right? And it's not going to happen immediately. I, I, I read an article this summer that, that was titled Zoom, the overnight success that was 12 years in the making. And, and so what you realize is elevators don't get to the top floor immediately. This stuff takes time. Uh, for us uh, at Baylor, it was, hey, um, one win year two, year 14, number one in the country. So <laughs> that, that took a little while. Uh, but we just said, listen, let's just get really, really good players who are talented, who care about doing the right thing. I would tell you my first year here, we took over a team that won six Division I games. Um, I didn't make any changes to the roster. I just said, listen, I know I'm getting my head kicked in year one. Um, I'll smile and uh, go through it. So when we get beat by 42 points by Oklahoma State, uh, Bill Self texted me afterwards, and he said, Paul, I only got beat by 41 the first time I played him uh, when I was a head coach at ORU. And I was like, oh, thanks, Coach Self. Uh, it's very nice of you. Um, and, and so what, you, what I realized then was I'm going to save all the scholarships, and I'm going to take my kicks to the head. And year two, I brought in nine new players. Well, you're not going to win with nine new guys. Well, those guys are now juniors now. And so those guys are now in a position to where they get the experience of a sweet 16. And so how did all that happen? This wasn't just a hey, immediately. It was, there was a long-term vision here. I kind of understood what I was getting into. Um, I tried to understand that, that this is going to take time and it's my job to just get, let's get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better over the course of time. And that was no different than, than what we did at Baylor. And uh, it had been no different than what we've done here. Now, the key is when I left in 2017, those guys at Baylor, um, we were number one in the country, ended up losing a sweet 16 game. Well, those guys have done a good job sustaining it. Uh, <laughs> now to a national championship, obviously, but all of that comes making sure the right people are on the bus getting rid of the wrong people off of it. So you can't be scared or intimidated to confront um, and, and doing it lovingly. But you have to understand this happens over the course of time. It just doesn't, this isn't add water. Yeah. And it's evident that uh, faith is obviously a big pillar in a Paul Mills run program, but um I'm I'm interested to hear like how how you approach a recruit or just building that culture like with with recruits and players like how how do you build that and sustain that culture of faith with your players? Sure, I mean one you you ask them what's important to them, right? Um, if you ever look at anybody's um, I don't know Instagram profile, Twitter profile, probably somewhere they've got like. God in there somewhere. Some of them will even have a Bible verse. 
Um, half of them don't even know what they're quoting. Uh, they just heard it from somebody else or, uh, you know what, it, it's, it's cool to put God in there. And so some people, uh, maybe they grew up in that kind of environment. So you're trying to navigate just where they are on this. I mean, it, I don't think it's that controversial. 98% of Americans believe in God uh, to some degree. Um, and, and so there's very few theists out there. I was actually one of them um, for about a one-year period of my life. So I, I can kind of go both sides on the atheist debate, Christian debate, and, and I enjoy talking to atheists. Um, but I say all of that to say you, you're, you're trying to figure out what's important to people. Um, what, what are, do you understand that, that, that God didn't make everybody six foot nine? So you have a God-given gift. It may be hand-eye coordination. It may be speed, uh, maybe height. Um, you have something that other people don't have. You have a gift in the game of basketball that other people don't have. What do you want to use that gift for? So I'm trying to figure out why are you doing this? Is it to be famous? Um, is it to be rich? Um, is it to, you know what, there's a bigger purpose here. I actually, uh, I, I would like to take care of my family one day. Um, you know what? I just really love the game and I've actually never thought about it uh, beyond a year or two. Or do you just want to go to the NBA? Um, do you do you understand the process that's involved? And so some of it is, is at the end of the day, the question that you're probably trying to get answered the best is do you like basketball or do you love basketball? And because I know a lot of guys that like it. Um, and the reality is, is when you get to college, you're going to want to quit. You've never worked this hard. Uh, you've never been pushed like you're about to be pushed. And the reality is, is I do not care who you are. You are going to want to tap out because we are here to expand your boundaries. Right now, your boundaries are here. Well, in order to, uh, to, to, to get to that point, it's, um, it's going to be difficult. And so in that context, um, I'm trying to figure out, do you like it or do you love it? And if you love it, you'll, you'll probably make it here. Uh, if you like it, I'm not sure if you're going to make it here. Yeah. And coach, I'd love to talk about just sort of part of that program building thing. You haven't really mentioned it yet, but it is something you talked about in one of your post-game pressers I watched, but just talking about scheduling, which is such a big part of, of coaching. Like you guys went to Missouri, you went to Oak State, you went to Arkansas, you went to Oklahoma, you went to Wichita State this past year as Oral Roberts as a, a small school. How big of a deal is it to make sure that you're 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 getting high level regular season competition and you're kind of scheduling up? Uh, clearly for you guys, it, it paid off down the road. But you know, do you kind of is that something you believe in? Was that just kind of coincidence that you? played a bunch of good teams this year or what? what, what no, if you look at uh, my four years here, three of the four years, we played a top 10 non-conference schedule in the country. Um, very deliberate. I think the one year we didn't, we were 56th in a non-conference. Um, and, and so we've consistently been a top 10 team in regards to scheduling non-conference. The reality is, is some of it's just proximity. Arkansas is an hour and a half away Oklahoma State's an hour away. Oklahoma was an hour and a half away. So in a COVID year, you weren't trying to venture far. And not all years are those games necessarily available. But um, if you truly believe 
that you have a team that can be a top 25 team, you have to go test yourself. Um, you have to put yourself up against those kind of situations. And we had, we do have Oklahoma state coming here this year, but my first four years, nobody was willing to come here. Um, and so we had to go to their arenas and I thought it was great because our guys had an understanding about what it took in order to be competitive. I was fortunate to be in the big 12 for 14 years. So I kind of understood what it looked like in order to be really good. Um, one of our other coaches, coach Springman was at Texas for 17 years. And so, so we, had, we had coaches who'd been around our players hadn't though. And so I go back to the naive quote um, that the youth are naive. They think they can run in there and just beat up on anybody. Well, we need to go test ourselves. And then we need to come back and watch the film. And you need to see the areas that need to be tightened up in order to actually make this happen. So this is very much deliberate on our part. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with the with the transfer portal this year, um, you know, and obviously Oral Roberts being an attractive spot, a lot of people might want to come play with uh, Oban or Acemas and things like that. How have you handled that situation this offseason? Um, don't really pay attention to it because we don't have any scholarships available. Uh, <laughs> you know, if we had scholarships available, I'm sure that we would look. But I, I think anybody – if you think about the transfer portal, um, you know, I, I would get contacted and be like, hey, uh, would you would you like the opportunity to recruit so-and-so? He's a seven-footer. He's a top 30 player in the country. And I would say no, um, because we don't need that position. We have to get a point guard. So I think so much of it is what position do you need uh, in order to be fair to your current guys as you're assessing the situation? I'm not just going to bring anybody and invite them into our family and mess up our locker room. I mean, we're returning a sweet 16 team that was in the final coaches poll. We finished 27th. So right outside the top 25. Uh, I'm not losing anybody who played um, uh, in those sweet 16 games beyond, I think, three minutes. Um, we, we had a, we did have some guys transfer, but they wanted bigger roles. So, completely understood um why would I want to mess that up um I'm not trying to mess that up at this particular point now we do have some guys who are on the NBA radar and we'll, we we've obviously encouraged those guys uh to to let's let's see where this leads uh because I want my guys to be NBA players I want them all to be pros um and I let them know that like you're here to become a pro uh, people go to college to study in accounting, to be an accountant. They go to study engineering, to be an engineer. You know why you came to college? Because you want to check one day doing whatever it is you're gifted at. So guess what? I'm going to push you to that point to where we're going to figure out how you become a pro and get paid for whatever God-given abilities you have in this. And so from that context, I'm not messing with our current group who have a desire to be pros. Um, now we have added some pieces um, and we'll announce some more here pretty soon uh, that we're pretty excited about. But uh, I think the transfer portal for most people, I don't think you're reconstructing a new team. You're probably just adding. And, and the other question is, is how long can you get them, right? I don't think I would do well with a guy 
you're here for eight months, um, depending upon how, how gifted you are. Uh, uh, and, and so do I want to bring in a guy for one year and then make my sophomore really mad because he ain't going to play as a junior? Um, and, and then mess up that team chemistry. So I think there's a lot of evaluation, but the evaluation comes as you're trying to figure out your position or your addition to your team that you need and how disruptive or how, how encouraging that could be to your guys. Yeah, Coach, I want to move sort of like coaching philosophy, X's and O's. I just really wanted to get your thoughts on, on what your kind of typical practice looks like. Um, you know, I just, I'd, I'd be interested to see what you think about this kind of debate that I've heard about balancing drills with, do we want to play three on three, four on four, five on five? Do we want to play more? Do we want more drill work? What does a practice look like for you? How have your practices kind of changed over the years? And then, and what do you do if your team is having a bad practice and you, you kind of recognize that midway through the practice, what, what do you, what kind of adjustments do you make at that point? If you think this isn't where I want it to be. Yeah, let me answer the last question first. Um, I'll see you guys at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. If, if practice, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if practice ain't going well, uh, I'm not sitting around watching that stuff. So, I mean, if you're going to make me take time away from my wife and from my children uh, to watch this, uh, I will see you guys in the morning. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, bad practices, I don't, I don't do well with. Uh, I think I kicked him out once this year and then I got mad because I kicked him out and was like, they, they think, and I said, y'all, I'll see y'all again tonight um, at like Ooh. six o'clock. So uh, I think we started at 10. I kicked him out at 1115 and then I'll see you again at six o'clock tonight. And, and by that time, I think we had their attention, but um, I'm not sitting around watching a bad practice. We'll get in shape because uh, we'll do a whole lot of running uh, or otherwise it's, I will see you in the morning, and I I'm, I hate mornings, hate them. Uh, I'm not a, I'm a late night guy. I stay up till about two or three in the morning. You do not want to see me at six a.m. I'm just telling you, uh, it's not it's not good for me, and it's not gonna be good for you. So uh, so I don't do well with bad practices, um, and 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 they know that, so they'll they'll figure it out. And there's obviously you're two people who can't have a bad one, me and your best player, um, the best player. And so I, I'll, I'll sometimes say, Hey, um, Aiden, you're over here. You suck, bro. Uh, you're, you're, you're not very good. Your practice is awful. And you know why? Because you're not the best player here. That's why you can be, well, I'm actually picking. I actually think he is the best player. And then if I say, Hey, Brant's actually the, that, you know why Brant never has a bad practice because he's the best player. Well, now Aiden's upset. And uh, and then you got three or four other guys like, man, I'm the best player. Then them dudes will pick it up. But I tell them pretty early that uh, the head coach and your best player, I never tell them who the best player actually is. Oh, okay. uh, and and yeah. so 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 Max and Kevin are sitting over there. Is it me? Uh, is he talking about Max? Is he talking about me? <laughs> so I just let right. them figure it out. Um, but if you're having a bad practice, you're not the best player is what I usually tell them. Um, regarding practice, um, so 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 last year we were number two in the country at not turning it over. This year we were 16th uh, in the country at not turning it over. I think if you were to add up those two years, I think we've done better than anybody in the country at taking care of the ball. And so the first 
10 minutes of practice will be passing, running, and passing to some degree. Um, there's a variety of drills, things of that nature that are involved in it, but we, we, we try not to make it too complex. The, the more your brain moves, the slower your feet do. And so I don't need you to overthink this. Uh, I need you to pass the ball um, and I need the other person to catch it. Uh, there's two reasons you'll go over to the treadmill during practice. Um, if you uh, don't catch the ball with two hands, um, you try to one hand catch, you will be running for a minute on the treadmill uh, for a while um, at, a, at a high speed. It, the, the more you're over there, the higher that speed goes um, if you're having to make multiple trips. And then if you don't play off two feet and, and you don't two-hand rebound. So two hands, two feet are pretty important um, because we're not dealing with pros just yet. They're still college players. So, so those two are pretty significant. And then we'll jump into, you know, whether it be offensive or defense um, um, to, to some degree. And then we always do individual development every day, at least 20 minutes. I'm a big believer in come February, I'd rather have two more, two better players than two more plays. And so we are going to, we got to get better, got to get better. And so we'll do that. And then, and then five on five. Um, probably mixed. I don't do a lot of three on three. I don't do a lot of four on four. Um, I just, the game's played five on five. Um, and so, I mean, we, we could break down a ball screen and, and teach you how to do that two on two. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, it, those other three had better know what they're doing too. So I try to do as much five on five as possible um, rather than uh, the three on stuff these are your reads and i'm like well where are the other four guys like we're just out here making three on three reads well i mean aren't there four other guys on the court that they need to pay attention to too so i don't i don't get caught up in the three on three four on four stuff much well i i mentioned you said you know the the more your brain moves the less your feet do i almost see that kind of play out when i watched you guys this year just in terms of if we can get a little bit of X's and O's here, like I, I just, I liked what you guys did where it, it almost seemed like you just kind of gave Acemas and O'Banner space to work when you set that first ball screen with O'Banner almost in transition, you know, well above the break there and then went right into that pick and pop. Is that kind of like a, a general offensive philosophy fee for you that you kind of just want to let your point guard create off of that screen at the top, or did you kind of just implement that because you had a guy as good as Max at the shooting off the live dribble and a guy as good as Kevin at shooting that, that pick and pop three, or, or is that something you'd like to implement with all your teams? Well, I mean, last year we were very post oriented. Um, Max is actually the best in the country at shooting off the dribble. Uh, I didn't know that going into the year. Um, it was just, yeah. you know, during, during the course of practice, I'm like, my goodness, guys, we cannot guard middle pick and roll. Like we're awful. And it was always Max and Kevin. And, uh, and then they we go play other teams. I'm like, oh, other people can't guard it either. Um, and the reason is, is Kevin's the best pick and pop player in the nation. Um, and Max is the best off the dribble shooter in the nation. So I got two of the best guys in the nation. And I would tell them that they're the best two in the country. There's nobody better than these two. And I honestly believe that. And then obviously the numbers bore that out. Now we practice that stuff every single day. But I think where where I may be different, um, I, I, I live, eat, sleep, breathe, 
if I watch five on five European basketball. I don't, I, I like the NBA, um, but the NBA is just a much different game than it, than college. Um, the NBA is two man pick and roll. Um, European basketball is five man pick and roll. And so I would always tell our guys, we are not interested in two man pick and roll. We are interested in five man pick and roll. And so the all five pieces moving um, instead of, hey, there's a ball screen, there's a pop, um, and everybody's just standing around space watching these other two. Um, that, that's not what I want. Um, there, there has to be movement and some level of distortion of the defense. Otherwise, teams can full rotate and they'll figure out how to take you out of stuff if it's only two people and the other three are stagnant. So we are trying to be more five-man pick and roll than we are two-man pick and roll. And how that looks um, is, is different. We, we honestly run a situation, what we call RPOs. Um, in football, it's a run-pass option. For us, it's a roll-pick option. And so what we work on are RPOs. Um, what does it look like if he rolls? What does it look like if he pops? Um, what is the cutting? What is the spacing? Um, we have all these X's all over the court about how this stuff actually works. So our RPO situation, whether it be in film or on the court, um, is, is pretty important because I think basketball should be organic uh, because if it is set oriented, if it is, hey, when they do this, they do this, teams are too good. They're going to figure out. And, and by the time you get to the Sweet 16, you can forget running any of that crap. Um, <laughs> right. Teams are blowing all of that stuff up. They're just too good. And they do such a tremendous job at scouting. Now, you may get away with some of that stuff early, but the higher and higher level of basketball you climb, the more predictable you are, the less chance you have. And so when is team, when is disadvantage basketball at its best? In my opinion, it's the first seven seconds. I think it's a lot harder to guard a ball screen the first seven seconds. Um, whether whether it be just running traffic or actually setting one, than it is once you get below 23 um, and, and teams of now they're established and they're figuring it out. So philosophically, yes. Um, but obviously some of that has to do with, with our personnel and, and their guys and their ability. Now, knowing how everybody else is supposed to move off the ball. I think that is really, really important. You know, coach, you mentioned uh, basketball. It's meant to be played organically and, uh, I was watching a thing uh, on the Rich Eisen show and you credited one of your assistant coaches and sort of just like improvising on an end game situation. And you took some advice from him. And I just wanted to, I think that speaks to how you value your staff and your managers in general. I just wanted you to talk about that. Yeah, one of, one of our graduate assistants, um, you, you won't like this because do both of you guys go to Purdue? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, he's from Indiana. Um, okay. and so he, he, he was there at Indiana and, and coach Crean is a friend and, uh, coach Crean, after he get, got let go at Indiana said, um, you need to look at my guy. And, uh, he was an undergraduate student for those guys and asked him to come over here and be a graduate manager, Ian Lehman. And Ian mentioned to me while one of our players, Max was shooting a free throw to cut the lead to one, um, uh, so-and-so is, um, uh, 50%. And I said, you mean 50% in the SEC? And he said, no, 50% on the year. And I said, my Lord, we can't stop anybody. Let's foul him. And, and, and so I looked over at one of the assistants and I said, what do you think? He said, yes. 
And uh, myself, so I heard the play call um, that they were about to do, and I knew he was touching it first. And I said, all right, um, we're fouling. That is a total tribute to um, – to, to our staff, I do not like our guys taking stats during games because I don't – anybody can take stats in the game. Oh, Brant uh, uh, shot one. All right. Uh, 0 for 1 for Brant. Aiden shot one. 1 for 1 for Brant. You know what? Uh, my eighth-grade daughter can do that. Now, she's smart, uh, but she could probably also do that when she was in the second grade. Um, and, and, and so I, I need you guys thinking – um, and, and I need you to add value to whatever it is we're trying to do. So from that context, um, what I really appreciate about Ian and, and Sam, and, and I think all of our staff would have been like, yes, let's foul him um, and give ourselves an opportunity here because we knew we were in the bonus um, with 311 to go. Uh, I think it was 311 on their end uh, when we fouled him and he went to the one and one. And so um, it it obviously worked out. Absolutely. And, you know, like you talk about maybe not using, taking the stats, but what, what role does, does the analytics, the data, this, it's analytics is such a buzzword that everyone loves to use, but for game scout, game prep, but then also for, for player development, how do you kind of use analytics? How do you use data in your program? In what context? Some places, I guess, have companies that'll just get through the information for them you know what, what does that look like in, in the oral roberts program yeah uh i love that stuff so when i was a high school coach i taught calculus and pre-calculus i don't say this to brag um but but if we were playing blackjack um i can count cards um and so if you've got uh seven decks of 52 cards each um i'll know the count uh and 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 so Math is something that I like, uh, and, and it's right. actually something I'm pretty good at. Now, let's not overcomplicate this stuff, right? Um, if if you're if you shoot threes and your basketball goes in two out of ten times, um, we don't need you shooting threes. All right. Um, so th that's that's point six points possession. We're not doing it now. Obviously, if you can be at the forty percent range, one point two points per possession. Um, we realize over the course of time the value there of, of points per possession. Now, we play basketball games. Hey, we're giving you 20 possessions, and I'll tell them the other team cannot score more than 20 points. So they may throw some in, right? Um, but you realize, like, oh, man, a three-pointer is 50% more than a two-pointer. Um, how do I make sure I'm not giving up quality threes to really good players? Because eventually, if I get 20 possessions and you score 20 points, I'm at one point per possession. And so I need to make sure you take shots that are less likely to go in, not layups um, and not wide open threes. So how do I do that defensively? So we talk about it a little bit um, so that our guys understand. So it definitely plays a part. But I'll tell you this. If Brant and Aiden are arguing, um, that doesn't take analytics to realize you're not a very good basketball team. Uh, I mean, this isn't, let's not make this harder than it needs to be. If you two cannot get along, or if I see you two really encouraging each other and you're fighting for each other and you're like talking like, I got your back, I got your back, sending this way, I got you. Okay, uh, now I don't, I don't need to look at analytics to know them two are going to fight. And, uh, and so 
if I can add the value of being a really good teammate along with some analytics, uh, now, now we've got something here. How do we get the most out of these possessions? The first thing is you better have some toughness to you. And then the second thing is recognize where do we get the most value from? Uh, where are we going to get the most value from? Um, the more we can get to the rim, the better the value we're going to get. And so to some degree, we explain it, but we try not to overemphasize it. So, Coach, we talked about a lot of things, you know, mentors and, uh, you know, just how you became a coach. But one thing I was curious about is you had said that uh, you went to the Dallas Theological Seminary and I, you'd said you did that to be, to uh, enhance your skills as coaching and to be a leader. And I was just curious how you how you sort of came to that and how you thought that would better you as a coach. Yeah. Um... You, you know, when, when I was uh, when when players were around after practice at Baylor, they wouldn't come up to me and say, how do I shoot a free throw better? Or what's our side pick and roll coverage? They would say, coach, my dad hit my mom last night and I'm going to see him later today. What should I tell him? And I remember thinking like, man, you know what? These young men, all 13 of them, um, they've got lives outside of these two and a half, three hours that we're together. Lives with girlfriends lives with family members, lives with cousins, lives with friends. Um, probably everybody has dealt with death, um, whether, whether it be yet a friend commit suicide or, or you've had internal thoughts about questions as you're trying to navigate life. And so what I realized is that these guys wanted to talk about issues that went way beyond the game of basketball. And, and I wanted to be equipped. I wanted to be able to help them. Um, not that I would ever try to intervene in, in a family situation such as the one I mentioned earlier. We would obviously farm that out and send these people to counseling to professionals who could help them. But I did want them to understand that I was there for them, that I loved them, and that I wasn't just going to throw out some casual opinions, that this was going to be something that was rooted in faith and that this was going to be something that they could dig deeper into as I walked alongside them. And so for me, that's how it helped me become a better coach is that it, that if all we're doing is talking about a 12 ounce rubber ball, uh, we're in trouble anyway, um, because nobody has any magic potion. Nobody knows something more than the next guy. Um, if you've ever noticed the coach of the year and the player of the year are usually on the same team. Um, and so there, there's a reason these are correlated. Uh, and, and so let's not overcomplicate basketball, but let's make sure these players know that you are in their corner. And so for me, knowing scripture, knowing the Bible, knowing who God is, that's what the Bible reveals, is knowing who God is. Help me help my guys. It helped me, obviously, um, but it also, more importantly, in my opinion, help me become a better leader in order to, to help my players. And so that, that was why I did it is I wanted to help my guys. Coach, you, you've been so generous with your time. We appreciate it. Last question, just kind of boil it down to one, you know, little nugget. If you had one just overarching piece of advice that you wanted young coaches to know, young coaches to understand, uh, what would it be? 
Yeah, I, I think the whole idea of uh, trust the process, um, there's value in that, right? Um, you know, I, I, I would kind of explain it this way is metaphorically speaking, it's not your job to fill other people's cups. Um, it's not your job to go in there and make sure that they listen to you, whether or not anybody listens to anything you said, it's not actually up to you, it's up to them. And so I would tell coaches, like, don't get caught up in, are they receiving this? Are they receiving this? Get caught up in, did I empty my cup? Did I go in there and did I give them my best? Did, I, did they know that I love them? Did they know that I, I came in there, I was really prepared? Do they, do they know that I'm competent and they know what the heck I'm talking about? Like, hey, I've studied this. I've looked at it. Let me show you the film. Let me, let, me, let me show you this. Let me show you how I love you guys and I'm invested in you. And so I would tell you, don't get caught up in filling other people's cups. Get caught up in emptying yours. And if you'll go in and you'll approach practice and you say, man, I'm about to give these dudes the best two hours I got. And, and whether they get better or they not, that's not up to you. It really isn't. Um, that's up to them. They may or may not receive anything you're saying. Over the course of time, though, the guys that really, really want to be good are going to take to heart what you want. And you're not going to get it right every day. You're going to go home and be like, man, I had a crappy practice today. Um, I said something I shouldn't have. Uh, that wasn't right. And you're going to have to go back and you're going to correct it the next day. But I, I, I would tell you, be, get caught up in emptying your cup and not filling theirs. Because the more you can empty your cup, now, how do you empty your cup? Well, you better have something to you. Um, you better go invest in yourself. You better, you better know what it is you're talking about because you can't empty your cup if you don't have anything. So there better be something accord to you. And so in order to empty your cup and, and, and do that rather than, than, than try to fill somebody else's. And, and I, I would encourage everybody it, it's it's our job to empty our cups every single day. There's nothing worse than gifts. Um, gifts are meant to be given away. There's nothing worse than not giving away your gift. If you didn't give away your gift, you have wasted a day. And I don't want to waste days. The way that you don't waste days is you empty your cup. Thanks so much to Paul Mills uh, for joining the, the Diamond Press, our first guest and a very good one at that. Uh, I thought he, he was a great guest. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Coach. On the Diamond Press podcast, Brant and I will have more coaches, probably about one per week, where we sit down with a coach like Coach Mills and do an hour-long episode similar to the, the style we did today. And the goal really is just to, to gain, in, gain in insight, gain information, uh, talk to established coaches and get their perspective on life and get their perspective on coaching. I think we accomplished that with coach Mills and I think we'll do the same going forward. Um, please give us a subscription, give us a five-star review. Uh, we're on Apple podcasts, Spotify, et cetera, wherever you get your podcasts, go ahead and give us a subscription leave us a review, whatever you may do. If you enjoyed this episode and look out for next week when we have coach Josh Thompson, of the Barry Vikings, who won the 1A state title in the state of Indiana this season on the show. That'll be hitting your podcast inboxes in about a week. So look out for that. Thanks so much for listening. As always, Diamond Press Podcast, Episode 1.